is an independently produced podcast. To support the show, visit www.downhomefear.com. Welcome to Down Home Fear, a podcast where we explore true crimes and strange happenings of the American South. My name is Keegan, and this is episode 14 of the show. Today we're going to revisit an old story from one of the lost episodes from the early days of DHF. One of the very first segments that I did for this show was on the infamous female serial killer Eileen Warnos. I thought that for new listeners of the show, it would be worthwhile to retell the story, and for the early followers of DHF, you can consider this to be the remastered version with improved editing and audio quality and some additional content as well. I feel that Eileen Warnos, or Lee, as she was known to her small circle of so-called friends, is often overlooked when compared to other serial murderers, because her crimes were not as grisly as those of, say, Jeffrey Dahmer or Ted Bundy or Richard Ramirez. She did not torture or brutally mutilate the bodies of her victims, and for this reason, I think that her case lacks some of the shock factor that is associated with those other murderers who I just listed, Furthermore, when I hear Eileen Warnos come up in discussions that I have with other true crime enthusiasts, I often hear statements like, oh, well, she just killed people to rob them, and that's kind of boring to me. And in my opinion, this is perplexing because while there was a financial component to her crimes, for sure, and while the murders she committed were more utilitarian in nature... I find that she is extremely compelling because once you learn about her backstory, you realize how she went on to become so demented in her adult life. And although it doesn't excuse her crimes, Eileen's story is really quite tragic, and at the end of today's episode, I think you'll see why. A really big disturbing content warning before we get rolling here, sexual violence was sadly a defining part of Eileen's life, and we get into that quite a bit during this episode. In particular, this story includes a very graphic description of rape that is included to provide context around her crimes and her mental illness. So, you've been warned.
Hornos was born Eileen Carol Pittman in Rochester, Michigan in 1956. She never met her father, Leo Pittman, because he was in prison for raping a seven-year-old girl when Eileen was born, and he hung himself before he was released. Some sources have suggested that Leo was also suffering from schizophrenia before he died. Eileen was abandoned by her teenaged mother when she was just three years old. She was sent to live with her maternal grandparents from that point on. Eileen would later describe her grandfather as an alcoholic who would sexually and physically abuse her on a regular basis. She also said that she had sexual relations with her brother. She began voluntarily engaging in sexual activity at age 11, where she would perform sexual acts with school children in exchange for food, cigarettes, and drugs. At age 14, she became pregnant after being raped by a friend of her grandfather's. Around this time, she went to live at a home for unwed mothers, and her baby was put up for adoption. At age 15, she was kicked out of her grandfather's house permanently, and she spent the next couple of years living as a homeless drifter. Eventually, she hitchhiked her way down to Florida in 1976. She would have been around 20 years old at this point. She ultimately landed in the Daytona Beach area. Daytona Beach is a medium-sized city that at the time had a population of about 60,000. It's on the east coast of central Florida and is home to the Daytona 500 NASCAR event, as well as many other motorsports events. So there are a lot of people who come and go from this area. Throughout the 1980s, Eileen is charged with a number of serious crimes, but nothing that she really does hard time for. She is arrested on various assault charges, theft charges, grand theft auto charges, but she's never in jail for more than a year or two at a time. Around 1986, Eileen meets a woman named Tyra Moore at a gay bar in Daytona. Now would be a good time to point out that although Eileen had sexual relationships with men and women, she self-identified as lesbian. Tyra Moore was 24 years old when they met, and it was pretty much love at first sight. They quickly became inseparable, with Warnos taking on the role of the provider in the relationship. She would support them mainly through her earnings from working as a prostitute. They would alternate between couch surfing at their friends' places, living in motel rooms, renting trailers, and even living in the woods around the Daytona Beach area. According to an interview with Tyra Moore on Bio, Eileen was pulling in a few hundred dollars a week from her prostitution earnings. Their vagrant lifestyle aside, there were other issues in the relationship as well. Tyra later stated in interviews that Eileen would fly off the handle at the drop of a hat. She would aggressively confront people 
for looking at her quote-unquote the wrong way while they were out at bars or out grocery shopping or just simply walking down the street. Eileen was very possessive of Tyra and often referred to her as her wife. The killings began on November 30th, 1989. Wornos' first victim was a man named Richard Mallory. Mallory was a convicted rapist, and Eileen would later claim in court that the murder had been in self-defense. She said that they had gone to a secluded location in the woods so that Eileen could engage in sexual um, activity for money. She was working as a prostitute. And Mallory became violent when Eileen would not agree to a particular sexual act. So I will play a audio clip from her first trial where she explains in her words what occurred. In the interest of time, I had to edit this down a little bit. So it goes for about three and a half minutes. It gets really fucked up. So if you want to fast forward... Um, now would be a good time to do so. He said, you're going to do everything I tell you to do. And if you don't, I'll kill you right now and I'll fuck you after. Like, just like the other sluts I've done. And, um... And he said, it doesn't matter to me. Their body, your body will still be warm for my huge cock. And... Okay, what happened next? Then he decided, he began to start having uh, anal sex. Okay. And he's doing this very violent manner, movement. And then he violently took himself out and violently put himself in my vagina. Were you saying anything to him at that point? No, I was crying my brains out. Okay, then what happened? Alright, so... uh... Okay, so just if you're having difficulty hearing that audio, she is describing being anally and then vaginally raped by Richard Mallory. Now, in this next part of the clip, Eileen describes how Mallory had a bottle of Visine that he had filled with rubbing alcohol and used it to um, pour across her genitalia and in her face, I guess, in an attempt to incapacitate her or torture her, and how she um, managed to get to her bag that she had brought with her, which contained her twenty-two caliber revolver that she then used to kill him. Takes Visine. And he lifts up my legs, and he puts what 
turns out to be rubbing alcohol in the Visine bottle. And he sticks some up my rectum area. And that really hurt really bad because he tore me up for a while. And some in my vagina. Which really hurt bad. And then he walked around to back to driver's seat side and he pulled my nose open like this. Pulled them open and he squirt rubbing alcohol down my nose. And he said, I'm saving your eyes for the grand finale. And he put the visine back on the dash. And I was really pissed. I was just, I didn't care. I was yelling at him and everything else. He was laughing away, saying, that's what I want to hear. I hear it when you start crying and all that pain. I thought to myself, I got to fight. I'm going to die. This guy is going to play with me and play with me, and then he's going to kill me. He's already said he's going to kill me. He's, he's already said he killed other girls. <coughs> I got to fight. I jumped up real fast, and I spit in his face. And he said, you're a dead bitch. You're dead. And he's wiping his eyes. And I laid down real quick, and I grabbed my bag. And he was starting to come for, for me when I grabbed my bag and Threw, whipped my pistol out toward him. And he was coming toward me with his right arm, I believe. And I shot immediately. And I think I shot twice, as fast as I could. So there you have Eileen explaining that first murder that was apparently in self-defense. An absolutely horrifying and disturbing account of um, why she had to defend herself and, and kill Richard Mallory. The thing is, there were six more people that she went on to kill over the ensuing 12-month period. She claims that these had all been in self-defense as well. All of Eileen's victims were white males, they ranged in age from 40 to 65. All of them were shot multiple times with a 22 caliber revolver. Eileen's strategy was to meet her victims at truck stops or motels and tell them that she needed a ride somewhere. After getting into their vehicle, she would offer them sexual favors in exchange for money. She would ride with them to a secluded area, but instead of turning a trick, as she called it, she would shoot them multiple times and then steal their money and valuables and run off. Eileen was really not a successful prostitute, which is why she used this system to gain access to her victims. I remember back when I was originally researching this story, I watched an interview and an investigator mentioned that she simply didn't dress the part. She didn't look like a prostitute. She would wear jeans and a flannel shirt. And I mean, she looked rough too. She was five foot four. She had kind of a stocky build, kind of broad shouldered and these very intense, almost what I would call 
shark-like eyes. She she did not really look like the sort of person you would want to uh, let your guard down around. So that's why she used this method to kind of ease her way in and gain access to her victims. On July 4th, 1990, Eileen and Tyra were involved in a single vehicle car accident while driving together in a stolen car. The car had been stolen from a man named Peter Sims, who Eileen had killed just weeks earlier. Tyra had been driving and apparently had tried taking a turn too quickly, and the car had rolled over. Multiple people witnessed the accident, and they were able to provide cops and sketch artists with the physical descriptions of the couple. They had to do this because Tyra and Eileen had fled the scene, but not before Eileen had ripped the license plate of the vehicle off with her bare hands and thrown it in some bushes in an attempt to throw people off of their trail. So the cops now had a physical description of these two suspicious people, and they also had Eileen's palm print and fingerprints from the dashboard of the car that they had been driving. Eileen's fingerprints were on record due to previous convictions and also due to pawn shop dealings that she had in the Daytona area. It may still work this way down there, I'm not really sure, but apparently in those days in Daytona Beach, um, for pawning off certain items, they would actually require the seller to get their fingerprints done. So through these two different avenues, the cops had her fingerprints, and thus a manhunt began. Eileen and Tyra's sketches were on the news, and the investigators were on Eileen's trail. It took them several months, but on January 9th, 1991, Eileen Warnas was arrested at the Last Resort. Last Resort is a notorious biker bar not too far from Daytona Beach. Eileen had been arrested, but not for murder. The cops needed a little extra help in order to charge her for this string of bodies that had been popping up across the Central Florida area over the past year. They found that help from Tyra Moore, who sold Eileen out to the cops pretty much instantly. She helped get Eileen to confess to the crimes in order to be granted full immunity from being charged in relation to Eileen's crimes. Tyra's level of knowledge that she had about Eileen's killings and robberies is up for debate. She says that she had her suspicions about where Eileen was getting her money from, but that she had been too afraid to really press Eileen for more information. Eileen said in her own words that she had been working as a hooker and that all the killings had been in self-defense because of the Johns had tried to assault her. That audio clip that we listened to earlier was from the first trial, the trial for Richard Mallory's killing. I will say that 
I believe Eileen, when she says that first murder was in self-defense, I mean, her description of the rape and assault by Richard Mallory is just so graphic and messed up. And those details about the rubbing alcohol and everything, it just, it doesn't seem like something that one would make up. Unfortunately for Eileen, though, the judge who was presiding over this case allowed evidence from the other six murders to be introduced as well, which is apparently very, very unusual and did ultimately result in Eileen getting sentenced to death for the murder of Richard Mallory. So she was convicted of that murder on January 27th, 1992, An interesting side note, around this time, a number of Florida state police officers were dismissed from the force for trying to strike deals with Hollywood movie executives in hopes of selling Eileen's story. The fear was that if the officers involved received money for their deals, Warnos' death sentences would be overturned. To add to the weirdness of this whole situation, a woman named Arlene Prowley actually adopted Eileen after she was arrested. As far as I can tell from various documentaries that I've watched and articles that I've read, it seems like Arlene Prowley became involved in this whole story in an attempt to profit off of Eileen in some way. Uh, She mentioned booking fees for interviews with Eileen and things like that. It was all very bizarre. At Arlene Prowley's suggestion, Eileen dropped her public defender after that initial Richard Mallory trial. Arlene suggested that Eileen hire a man named Steve Glazier, who was a... Uh, what's the right word? Huge weirdo? I I don't know how else to describe him. He's a really odd guy. He doesn't seem like a legitimate lawyer at all, aside from just having, I guess, the right credentials. But the whole thing between Steve and Arlene Prowley is really strange. I mean, they begin speaking to the press and saying that Eileen has an opportunity to be home with God. And Steve, in particular, says, The best thing for Eileen to do is to be honest and confess her sins to God and seek salvation. Which is really, really odd. Um... For a, uh, for a defense lawyer to be making statements like that to the press, it just seems so crazy to me. Steve would convince Eileen to plead no contest to three of the other murder charges for which she received three more death sentences. And in 1992 and in 1993, Eileen would go on to plead guilty to the murders of two other victims as well, which she was also sentenced to death for. So that's a total of six death sentences. Eileen had killed seven people, but they never found the body of one of them, Peter Sims, who is the 
man who the stolen vehicle that Tyra Moore had crashed belonged to. Um, so they never found his body, and Eileen was never sentenced regarding that particular murder. So she killed seven, was sentenced to death for six. Once she was in prison, she was examined by various psychologists and other experts. She scored a 32 out of 40 on the PCLR psychopathy checklist. In the United States, a person needs to have a score of 30 to qualify as having a clinical level of psychopathy, so she met that criteria. Also, multiple psychiatrists diagnosed Eileen Warnos as having borderline personality disorder and or antisocial personality disorder. Apparently, she met the criteria for both of those different uh, disorders. In my opinion, at the very least, Eileen Warnos was not mentally well. She uh, had some very obvious issues with delusional thinking and paranoia. Here is an audio clip of her speaking with an interviewer shortly before her execution. Yeah, I'm ready to go. Hey, I was tortured at BCI. They had, they had the intercom on in the room, and they kept lying that it wasn't on, and they were using sonic pressure on my head since 1997. Sonic and pressure. And every time I was trying to write something, I, they'd, and I, I think they had some kind of eye in the cell, I'm not sure, but every time I started writing something, it went up higher. So I'm thinking that probably had the TV rigged. The TV or the mirror, something was rigged. They got a huge satellite on the compound. After they put the huge satellite on the compound, it could have been either rigged to the TV set or the mirror or something, because the electrician, when he put the mirror on the wall, he said, doesn't that look like a computer? The back of it, and they stuck it to the wall. And do you think, what, did that affect your mind, do you think? Huh? Did that affect your mind in some way, the sonic? It was crushing my head, and they were using sonic pressure continually. They're trying to make it look like I was crazy at all times, rig up the room with torture. If I said anything about their whole, I think their whole plan was trying to make it look like I was totally crazy, and so nobody would believe anything I had to say about anything, and then drive me there if they could. I suffered so bad. I was really struggling to survive had a lot of trays that were attempted murder and everything. I had to wash all my food off. Then, then one day I didn't wash my food off and I was sick for three weeks, almost died. That's a clip from the documentary Eileen Warno's Life and Death of a Serial Killer. The British guy who you can hear chime in a couple of times is named Nick Broomfield. He is a documentary filmmaker who had been interviewing... Eileen for um, actually quite shortly after she was arrested and charged with the murder of Richard Mallory up until she was executed. There you can hear her talking about how she believed that a prison cell that she was kept in had been rigged with devices that were meant to drive her insane and cause her 
physical harm. She talks about how she thought she was being poisoned by the food that she was being given. And this is just a day before her execution. She definitely did not seem very lucid to me in that interview, but I guess the state of Florida felt differently. Eileen Warnos was executed on October 9th, 2002. She was killed via lethal injection in the Florida State Prison in Bradford County, Florida. She died at 9.47 a.m. Her last words, I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back like Independence Day with Jesus June 6th, like the movie Big Mothership and All. I'll be back. Her ashes were scattered in her home state of Michigan by a childhood friend. was terrible and that murder unless it's in self-defense is never right however I just read about her life and I see someone who never had a chance she had such a messed up childhood she had such a just fucked up adulthood too. She had an all around just awful, awful life. And I think that she was taken advantage of at every turn. I mean, starting way back with the obvious stuff with her abuses that she suffered during her childhood, all the way up to adulthood where it seemed like she was just being taken advantage of again by people like Tyra Moore. Tyra was essentially just hanging out and getting drunk and doing drugs and partying off of the money that Eileen was making through her high-risk lifestyle as a prostitute. And the second shit went south and they the law caught up with them Tyra just sold her sold her out she just threw Eileen under the bus and I mean it just goes on from there I mean even through the trial you have people like Steve Glazer you have people like Arlene Prally who seem more interested in finding a way to profit off of Eileen and profit off of her death rather than seeing her as a human being seeing her as a person it's just all very very disgusting to me. Anyhow, you've been listening to Down Home Fear episode 14. I hope you enjoyed it. I know this was another one of the heavier episodes, but it's just an interesting story that I wanted to revisit. I hope that you got something out of it. If you'd like to 
join the conversation. If you would like to send me your thoughts or send other listeners your thoughts, be sure to check our group out on Facebook. Just send a request and I will approve it and you can join our awesome conversations. You can also email me at downhomefear at gmail.com. That is an email that I check regularly. So if you have a story suggestion or a comment or you know feedback of any sort, I would uh, definitely love to take a look at it. So you can send that to me there at downhomefear at gmail.com. There is also a Twitter page. It's at downhomefear. If you would like to make a contribution to the podcast to help me keep things running, help me pay for all of the various expenses that go into uh, creating this show, check that out at downhomefear.com. There is a support the show page where you can go and if you would like, you can make a donation. I can't thank you enough for joining me. This show has been growing exponentially over the past two to three months. And I mean, obviously there's no one to thank besides you, the listener, for joining in on those. I uh, I mean, I was just looking at the statistics for the website and for um, the SoundCloud and all that other stuff. And I mean, we used to, when we started out, I would get like, if I got 15 downloads or streams a week, I'd be like, wow, that's, that was a really eventful week. And now in the last seven days, we've had over 1100 people download or stream this show. And that is just so awesome and crazy. And I'm so excited about it. My name is Keegan, and thank you again for joining me today. This has been another installment of Down Home Fear.